now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode one of our community relations season, Just Science sat down with Monica Shepard, a research analyst, and Dr. Amanda Wright, a research psychologist, both in RTI's Transformative Research Unit for Equity, also known as TRUE, to discuss reforming American pretrial policies. Researchers have closely followed the racial and economic disparities that exist in American incarceration, particularly surrounding pretrial detention. Supported by Arnold Ventures, Advancing Pretrial Policy and Research, also known as APPR, seeks to improve pretrial outcomes by investing in research, technical assistance, and implementation across a range of partner sites nationwide. Listen as Monica and Yamanda discuss racial and socioeconomic disparities in the pretrial system and ways APPR is working to address them in this episode of Just Science. This episode is funded in part by RTI's Applied Justice Research Division and Advancing Pretrial Policy Research, supported by Arnold Ventures. Here's your host, Peyton Attaway. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Peyton Attaway, with the Applied Justice Research Division at RTI International. In this season of Just Science, we analyze various research that spotlights community relations. Our topic today is reforming pre-trial policies. Here to help us navigate this conversation are guests Yamanda Wright, a research psychologist in the Transformative Research Unit for Equity, or TRUE, at RTI International, and Monica Shepard, a research analyst at RTI International, also in TRUE. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda and Monica. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having us. Could you both talk to us more about your role at RTI, your current research projects, and what led you to work on a project that's focused on pretrial policies? Amanda, we'll go to you first. First and foremost, I'm a psychologist, and I'm a developmental psychologist to be specific. And that means basically I like to think about how criminal legal systems impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And how our interactions with institutions like courtrooms and jails and prisons can look really, really different across individuals and across groups of people. I'm particularly interested in racial disparities at the front door of the criminal legal system because the pretrial setting for me is essentially a crossroads between many different institutions that have historically over-penalized Black people. When you think about the criminal legal system and when you think about the pretrial system in particular, all of the usual suspects are there. So you've got the defendants who are mostly black and brown people, but also law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, probation and parole officers, even bail bondsmen. And all of these groups have historically exercised structural racism in black communities. Later, a lot of those groups trail off, right? So for example, after a person is convicted, they'll never see a bailer for that case again. But in pretrial, you have all of these people in the same room and you can observe how their systems interact, how they influence each other and how they build off of each other. And also historically over time, you can see how they've contributed to structural racism, for example. And I find that absolutely crucial as a developmental psychologist. I think of it as like a critical period we talk about in developmental psychology, where like a moment in a person's life can really determine the course of the rest of their life. And the pretrial system, I think of as a critical period in a person's interactions with institutions, 
like the criminal legal system and their relationships with that system over time. That's fascinating, Amanda. Thank you so much. And Monica, what about you? One of the benefits of working at an organization like RTI is the opportunity to work on and become familiar with so many different topic areas. So as a former corrections social worker, I've leveraged that experience by working on several corrections-based studies, such as the National Inmate Survey. Um, This particular study was designed to address the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003, more commonly referred to as PREA, uh, with a goal of addressing and eradicating sexual assault among incarcerated persons. I've served as an evaluation and sustainability TTA coach on a reentry project, and I'm actually serving on that project now. And I've served as a qualitative interviewer for domestic violence, human trafficking work, as well as projects designed to study the racial disparities seen in local criminal legal systems. As for the work I'm doing with Yamanda and our other colleagues that we'll talk about in a bit, this project focuses on implementing reforms to pretrial systems and policies which directly impact the number of people waiting in jail. So I know how devastating it can be for people who are waiting in jail pretrial as well as their families. So I was really excited for the opportunity to work on this project and be involved in the effort to reform pretrial systems as we know them today. That's amazing. Yamanda, how does your past research or professional experience color your current perspectives? I think my past professional experiences have been really influential. I don't talk about this often because at this point it feels like a lifetime ago, but my PhD dissertation wasn't about the criminal legal system or about pretrial or any of that stuff. It was actually about kindergartners' ability to detect and understand racism. It was a really fun study. I feel weird saying that because it was about their feelings about racism, but we got to ask them lots of questions about skin color, whether it was naturally important to them, like these are five or six-year-olds, and whether they thought it was important to the adults in their lives, their parents and their teachers and other people at school. And without prompting all those babies, they already knew that race and power are connected Mm -hmm. and they might not have been able to articulate the roles of race and power in their lives. For example, they couldn't talk about the school to prison pipeline, but they already expected at five and six years old, a white teacher to have different expectations for them than a black teacher. And they adjusted their behavior in like an experimental setting. So for me, that led to a career in juvenile justice reform, which is also in some ways about young people's relationships with institutions and with race and power. In my first couple of research gigs, I continued to ask young people questions about their experiences with juvenile justice institutions like juvenile detention centers, juvenile prisons. And I asked them about these systems that were supposed to rehabilitate them, but often did the opposite. And I started doing this work as an advocate in my home state of Texas. I worked for a small organization called Texas Appleseed that does lots of juvenile justice reform work, but then also bail reform and works on a bunch of other policy fronts. And I would just say across my career, my heart has always been in equity research. I enjoy amplifying the stories of Black and Brown people who I think have a lot of amazing things to say about how systemic racism can actually be reversed. And I especially enjoy talking to young people because they are the next generation of our scientists and our lawyers and our judges and our advocates 
who can actually enact all of that change. That is amazing, Amanda. I had chills through all of that. Um, I That is just so wonderful to hear. And I'm so grateful that you made your way to RTI and that we have people like you doing very impactful and important research. And Monica, I would like to hear from you about what your past research and professional experience and how they color your current perspectives on this research. As I mentioned earlier, many years ago now, I began my career as a correction social worker, actually in a work release facility for women in Harrisburg, PA, where I grew up. The facility was actually designed for women to bring their children up to age five to live with them, a model that was rarely seen in the U.S. at that time. So part of my responsibilities in that role required me spending time in the county jail, working with the women to determine work release eligibility and to kind of help them prepare for the transition to work release, which wasn't speedy nor efficient at the time. So I helped the women coordinate care for their children while they were still incarcerated at the jail and supported many through the process of their children being placed in foster care if they didn't have any family support. I connected the women with community employers to help the women advocate for their jobs to be held for them, especially when they were being held on very low-level nonviolent offenses, which would likely allow them to be released in a relatively short amount of time. I work with landlords to store personal belongings so the women didn't lose everything they owned while they were incarcerated or at the work release facility. Um, and just really helped to support the women through these trying times while they were in the county jail. So through that experience, that's my very first job out of undergrad, I witnessed firsthand how detrimental even a short period in jail can be on a person and their families. People lost their children, their homes, and jobs after relatively short amounts of time in jail, time that likely would have been significantly decreased had there been more comprehensive pretrial policies and programs in place. Thank you so much for sharing, Monica. It's so interesting, I think, even thinking back to those times and all of the strides that are being made in bail reform, but it's still obviously not enough. So in that vein, can you tell us more about the Advancing Pretrial Policy and Research Project that's supported by Arnold Ventures? So APPR is designed to identify fair and effective pretrial policies that can be scaled nationwide. So looking first at the jurisdiction level and identifying what's working and then scaling those practices up. And we achieve this by conducting comprehensive research on pretrial assessments like the PSA, the public safety assessment, and then other uh, PSA sort of adjacent policies. And then we provide technical assistance for high fidelity implementation of strategies that are shown to work. Um, and I think one of the, the core principles of APPR that I'm really drawn to is that pretrial justice shouldn't just make communities safer, but should also include deliberate strategies to eliminate racial, ethnic, gender, and economic disparities. So when I read that on APPR's website and our materials, what I think is it's not just about reducing harm from individual to individual but also reducing harm to communities and harm that has been building and compounding over generations and generations. And I think that's a really powerful aspect of our work. You know, in order to achieve that, uh, APPR's model is to work with criminal legal system professionals and their community partners to improve pretrial systems in ways that maximize pretrial outcomes and increase fairness and racial equity. Their activities include intensive technical assistance for up to 10 research action sites, implementing the public safety assessment or PSA and other pretrial improvements. 
um, is for rigorous research and evaluation in the research action sites, including measuring racial disparities to identify opportunities for more effective policies and practices. Technical assistance and online support to learning sites committed to examining their pretrial system and implementing the PSA, developing online resources, and providing training and assistance to jurisdictions nationwide. And finally, for sharing research findings to advance effective pretrial policies across the U.S. Amanda, can you talk to us more about RTI's APPR Racial and Community Justice Committee and the work being done by them? So the RCGC is an internal committee of RTI researchers with specialized expertise in equity research specifically. And it was established to ensure that RTI maintains its focus on racial equity and community engagement across everything that we do in APPR and to help ensure that APPR's study of pretrial change is informed by people who are actually affected by pretrial systems, such as people with lived experience. And I actually serve on the RCJC, uh, and part of our work includes completing consultations with RTI APPR task leads. Uh, during those consults, we might review deliverables with an eye towards cultural sensitivity or strategize on how to implement a racial equity plan. We've also completed several research briefs. So one I had the opportunity to lead was with Dr. Grace Gamez. She's the founder of an advocacy agency in Arizona and a member of RTI's APPR advisory board. Dr. Gamez discussed her experience engaging the community in her research. Uh, RCJC member Elizabeth Tibadweza, she actually completed a brief on using data dashboards to explore racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal legal system. And just recently, uh, RCJC members Jaden Jules, Dr. Megan Comfort, and I completed work on a research brief about why many have begun to use the term criminal legal system instead of criminal justice system. So we're doing some really impactful work and really do appreciate the opportunity uh, that APPR and our project leadership has given us to develop this work out more fully. That's amazing. How many research action sites are there under the APPR project? Uh, we currently have six research action sites. There are four in the first cohort and then two in our second cohort. Just out of my own curiosity, was this something that was written into the original APPR proposal for work? Or is this something that you all uh, saw a need for and just kind of implemented? Yeah, so thank you for asking. It wasn't um, in our original scope of work, you know, over the last couple of years, obviously, there have been some really, just some great intention put on racial and social justice mm -hmm. issues around the country. And so our project leadership really thought it important to try to weave this into our work, if we could, and Arnold Ventures was able to uh, make a way for us to do that. Hopefully that's something that can be replicable on some of our other projects uh, in the criminal legal system. We hope that it will, honestly, Peyton. This is something, um, again, that we started midway through this project, but we believe that it is going to be a model for us to introduce this in some of our proposals moving forward. Um, we're taking some of our presentations on the road, if you will, and going to different projects and giving some of these presentations. And we're hopeful that this will serve as a model for them to think more strategically about their racial and community justice involvement on these projects. Makes me so happy to hear. Are there any high-level findings from the APPR work that surprised you or that you want to elevate to our audience? In terms of qualitative research, Yamanda and I recently wrote a brief about community engagement and the APPR research action sites. 
This brief, which will soon appear on the APPR website, highlights what we have learned so far about community engagement, provides insight into what is working well for the site, and it offers summaries of challenges as reported by research action site stakeholders. It also provides some strategies for jurisdictions who wish to engage with their communities but haven't done so yet. So in a spring 2021 survey, almost 80% of respondents from these sites reported that meaningfully engaging the community is an extremely important or very important goal for their participation and the APPR. However, at the time of the survey, only about half were actually engaging the community members. Although there are many benefits to of engaging the community, undertaking these efforts can feel daunting for some, and it might be hard to decide upon first steps. So for example, it can be difficult to know how to get started if a pretrial reform initiative such as APPR has only garnered partial support from professional stakeholders, or if there's a lack of consensus on whether the community should be actively involved in policymaking decisions. First steps might also be challenging if professional stakeholders value engaging the community, but don't feel like they have the time and capacity to cultivate meaningful relationships. So we heard from some people that they wanted to make sure their engagement plan was perfect with all their ducks in a row, right, before beginning to informally engage the community. Although discussions with community members need to be approached thoughtfully, waiting to begin them until plans feel fully fleshed out risks kind of truncating the impact that community members have because they weren't able to weigh in at the start of the project. But, you know, it wasn't all an uphill battle for our sites. So, in fact, the research brief includes a spotlight from a community member who we'll call Jamie, who identifies as having lived experience in the criminal legal system and is a part of the site's policy team. When asked what advice Jamie would give to a new jurisdiction joining the APPR, they said that it should be a priority to make sure all community members are represented, especially when talking about criminal legal reform. Jamie went on to say in part, and this is a quote, a lot of people want to disregard people who have been incarcerated or have been arrested. But the thing is, the feedback from them is what's really going to help you become successful. So we know community collaboration can be difficult, but it is obtainable and working well in some of our sites. Thank you so much for sharing, Monica. Yamanda, is there anything you would like to add to that? Yeah. So in addition to having some really, really rich and surprising qualitative findings, we've also had some quantitative findings that have come as a surprise to us. And one that stood out to me recently is that among the research action sites that have completed a historical validation of the public safety assessment, none have found that the PSA makes racial disparities worse. So that's great news, right, for the tool itself, because it means that we can potentially stabilize a stage in the court process that currently is all over the place in terms of policies and practices and disparities, like racial disparities. But it presents a really interesting dilemma for jurisdictions regarding everything else, because it's still the case that there are pervasive and persistent racial disparities and the things that happen before an assessment tool like the PSA would be applied. There are disparities in who's arrested, who's charged, who's detained for criminal offenses. And so implementing the PSA can help jurisdictions ensure that those disparities that happen at the front end aren't magnified once someone progresses through all of the other decision points. But it's by no means a magic pill for racial equity. And that's a really huge takeaway point of our study already, I think. 
Our findings regarding the PSA's performance by race underscore that it's not just about that touch point, but about all the other touch points that touch that touch point. And in order to make sure that the system isn't having this cumulative disparate impact on people, you can't just look at where the PSA exerts some control. You have to look at everything else that sort of combines with that across the process. I'm really thrilled to hear that you all are promoting the integration of people with lived experience into these pilot sites or research action sites boards, because I think that's been a movement that's been happening in public health for quite some time, but I haven't seen it as much in the criminal uh, legal system. So this is amazing um, to see that that's something that you all are promoting. And I definitely wouldn't take credit for it. or I don't think that our researchers would take credit for it. It's part of APPR. I think it's sort of a part of the policy and social landscape of our country right now. And even before this really different period of the last two years, I think many like city and state governments have started this process of incorporating community feedback, people with lived experience. But I think there are different parts in their journeys, depending on how long they've been at this work. And each site is evolving in terms of how authentic that engagement is and how much decision-making power people have who are on these panels. Right. And, and I would just add to that. I mean, there's been this sentiment, right, that we've heard from some community members with lived experience and beyond this slogan that nothing about us without us, right? It's a phrase that's used mm-hmm. to communicate the idea that policies should not be decided by any type of representative body that don't have the people who are impacted in the room talk about what this means for them and how it might be able to be improved. And oftentimes we see that groups that are marginalized are kept out of those conversations. And so it's nice to see there being a shift, honestly, in the criminal legal system and beyond to make a change in that area. So, Yamanda, you mentioned the PSA and the impact that has on looking at racial disparities in these communities. Can you give us a high-level overview of what the PSA is and what this means um, for communities that are interested in implementing it? Sure. So the PSA is an assessment that takes a bunch of historical data on a person about basically all of their contacts with the criminal legal system, the local system, and uses that information to predict their likelihood of success in the pretrial setting for whatever offense they've currently been charged with. And so that tool pulls in like jail data about the person's present and past bookings. It includes their history of arrests across the state and across their lifespan. And then it includes their court history, all the criminal court cases that person has had and what the outcomes are. And it pulls from all of those data nine factors and uses those data to calculate the likelihood that a particular outcome might happen. So for example, the likelihood that they will fail to appear in court um, for their next court appearance if they're released pretrial. And the reason why that is useful is because it's a systematic way of looking at a person's past and using that past to predict the future and is more reliable in how it's systematized than, for example, going on a case-by-case basis where individual biases and assumptions might make people assume that different people will have different likelihoods of success. So it basically takes all of those data and then it produces a prediction that allows system stakeholders 
to adjust a person's pretrial release conditions, for example, based on that person's likelihood of success during the pretrial period. Monica, earlier you mentioned that you worked on a brief that detailed this shift in language from the criminal justice system to calling it the criminal legal system. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the major findings from that brief? We actually uh, took a look at the evolving language of law, right? Because language matters. You know, we see um, great intention in society now, you know, on pronouns and person first language. And this is kind of in line with that, if you will. So it is common now to hear the term criminal legal system used instead of criminal justice system as really a way of highlighting that the system often does not adequately deliver justice for all, right? Particularly for low income individuals and people of color. So the brief provides a summary of the evolution of this shift, as well as other language used to describe people affected by the system. It includes an overview of the developing terminology and legal and judicial discourse, some working definitions, and reflections from multiple perspectives on language and phraseology on justice. So within this brief, we have some wonderful quotes in addition from people we've reached out to. I mentioned that Jaden Jules is a member of the RCJC, and he actually reached out to several attorneys on Twitter and through other means to get their thoughts on criminal legal system. And these few defense attorneys all said that they no longer use criminal justice system, that they have switched to criminal legal system um, because the system just has not been just for all of their clients. That's amazing. I love that shift. And it's something that I've been trying to incorporate into my own writing. And I feel like sometimes I get pushback because it's right. It's not the traditional thing. I mean, I think it's what's happening with all of, like you were saying, the people first language. So that's super exciting to hear that you guys are working more on that. Right. And we worked on this and we did some research, but we presented it to our project leadership just yesterday, actually, in a presentation. And we Mm -hmm. ended with challenging everyone to make that shift when it's appropriate And I say when it's appropriate because, you know, there are some people, some funders and grant managers that haven't made the switch just yet. Thankfully, Arnold Ventures has. Mm -hmm. Um, Just weeks ago, they put out an announcement to say they were switching all of their terminology to criminal legal system, which I think speaks volumes, right? But there are some people who have been impacted by the system who have not made the switch yet. So, you know, for the sake of not being a distraction and having to define terms, We will make the shift as necessary when it's called for. And if some of our community members or persons that have been impacted are still using criminal justice, we will use that as well. But we are happy Mm -hmm. to make that switch when others um, are open to that. This is a good logistical question. So how do you guys receive quantitative and qualitative data from different partner sites? And how have you addressed any challenges that have arisen with that data collection? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> no, not really. But um, I, I can speak to the quantitative data collection because in addition to being a site liaison, which is more focused on the qualitative side, I'm also a data manager for a site. So I've been involved in our data collection activities and some of the data analysis. Um, and getting the right data for APPR's research activities like validating the PSA can be a really long and really complicated process, honestly. Every jurisdiction's data system is unique 
And we often need to collect data from several different data providing agencies, both at the county and the state level, in order to get that full picture of a person's contact with the local criminal legal system. And that presents logistical challenges on the one hand, like being able to link across data sets with different ID systems. Another common challenge is that most of the data systems I've seen have no reliable way of indicating who is in jail pretrial versus for some other reason that wouldn't be eligible for the PSA, like people who are there for probation violations or for federal detainers or who are transfers from other states. And that sounds so simple, like it would be a natural variable in an administrative data set, but these systems, they weren't actually designed for this kind of research. They are systems that are mostly for record keeping and for case management and not necessarily for analysis. So we as researchers have to do some really specialized work to pull the kind of information out that would be actually useful for policy development. And the ultimate goal being to build capacity and transparency among local stakeholders about who's in jail and why they're there. So we have to do things like build that pre-trial flag in order to be able to do that. On the other hand, after you get past those coding challenges, fingers crossed, there are also challenges to analyzing the data consistently across that mosaic of systems that has different populations, policies, and data structures by jurisdiction. So we have to work really closely with system professionals to make sure we understand the data infrastructure for each research action site. And then we have to tailor our analytical approach by jurisdiction. And I can tell you, it's a very difficult, but in the end, it's a really rewarding process. Wonderful. And what about the qualitative data? In addition then to being a member of the RCJC, uh, Peyton and I also co-lead our site liaison team. And I'm the liaison for one of the research action sites. So I'm primarily working on qualitative data. At the site liaison team, we conduct monthly check-in calls with the site point of contact who are often someone working in court administration or pretrial services who is helping to coordinate the APPR locally. And I'll say this, we conduct at least monthly check-in calls. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, there are more than that per month, depending on the needs of the site and what's going on. We also have regular site visits, either in person or virtually, with policy team members, and they are criminal legal system professionals from judges to DAs, public defenders, and pretrial staff. And in addition, um, some of the sites have community members, so we will speak with them as well. So when RTI launches APPR surveys, uh, the site liaisons also help coordinate by ensuring we have up-to-date contact lists and by sending reminders for participation. So I would say one of the biggest challenges is probably that our contacts and the policy team at large are just really busy um, and often finding time for monthly check-ins and up to two site visits a year can be difficult. I mean, I told you what they all do and what their roles are mm -hmm. and especially post COVID with all the backlogs that we're seeing you know, due to COVID closures and shutdown for many months over a year in some of these jurisdictions, it's very difficult for them to find the extra time to speak with us. Most of them do. So Yamanda talked about RTI's efforts to help site stakeholders understand the ins and outs of quantitative data so that they can be more engaged on how those data are collected. On the qualitative side, we try to help people working in the sites to understand the value of stepping back 
and talking with us about the very hard work they do on a daily basis. So rather than our monthly calls or our interviews feeling like an interruption or just one more thing on their really busy to-do list, we strive to like engage them in the research process in ways that get them excited about documenting and reflecting on the qualitative aspects of what they're doing. Lastly here, to help lessen the burden to our site contacts, our, our teams are really flexible and rescheduling meetings when the need arises and it arises often and we roll with that just so that we are not a burden to them. We've opted on occasion for written check-ins in lieu of virtual meetings and we have met with our stakeholder uh, designees for updates when they just didn't have the bandwidth or the time to meet with us. Speaking of COVID, just in general, how has the COVID-19 pandemic challenged this project? Before COVID, our APPR site visits and other large project convenings were in person. Obviously, once the pandemic prevented safe travel, we adapted and conducted our site visits virtually. Some might think moving to a virtual interview might have impacted the quality of our data or our ability to schedule people. Because let's face it, it's not always easy to get people to be candid in a face-to-face mm-hmm. interview, let alone on video, right? Right. Um, because of the report, you know, quite honestly, that the site liaisons have previously built in with all of our research action site teams, everyone was really understanding and willing to participate virtually, which often includes being recorded for our notes. And we very rarely got any pushback on that. Scheduling the virtual interviews was easier for many of our policy teams that we interviewed as well, since they could take the interview from their offices or their homes, as opposed to traveling to a centralized location, which might include time for travel and security screening, depending on where it was located. And so I would say the only disadvantage to that virtual um, only interview process is that it prevents our team from observing pre-trial and other APPR processes. So luckily our team had an opportunity to do that in the fall of 2019. And we will do that again when it's safe to do so. So as our site start thinking about implementing the PSA, when it's safe to do so, we will be back to visiting them again so that we can see their training and their implementation processes in person. And I'll add to that on the data side, um, I think anyone who works with data will agree with me when I say that the pandemic has done some really weird things to data mm-hmm. collection and to quantitative analysis. I think it's challenged the pretrial system in both good and bad ways. And I think all of those challenges are basically reflected in the data. On the one hand, the pandemic has been, and I've heard many people describe it this way, uh, so pardon me for being cliche, but it's been a sort of controlled experiment in what can happen when you make really bold, broad changes in a system like a pretrial release system in an effort to shrink your jail population specifically. So think of jurisdictions around the country that, for example, stopped holding people in jail for certain kinds of drug possession or other offenses related to substance use by one person, maybe not drug distribution, but one person substance use. Mm -hmm. For many of those offenses, we saw that keeping people out of jail didn't actually result in huge spikes in crime like never before. And it's important for us to remember that. And that's important context for when we're looking at the data, that there are certain inputs that have been changed that may or may not have changed the output or sort of like what the outcomes are in the data. But then I'd say on the other hand, there are jurisdictions across the nation who have not only made those like really bold positive changes, but who have also had huge backlogs in the court process. For example, with people languishing in jail 
waiting for a really long time for a first appearance or a subsequent hearing, um, sometimes for months and months. And that has been disruptive, not only for adjudicating cases, but also for people's lives and for their families' lives, sort of like mm-hmm. Monica was describing earlier. And so the data patterns are all over the place. We're seeing huge precipitous drops during COVID. We're seeing huge increases as we're hopefully nearing the end of COVID. And all of those things have to be taken in context. And it'll be interesting to see how much we're able to actually draw conclusions from this moment in history later on, like further down the line. Definitely. And what are the next steps for the APPR project and your work together in this area? Well, one of the things I'm going to be involved with, which I'm excited about, is that our teams um, are going to be soon implementing quarterly webinars for all of the research action sites. So this is going to be an opportunity for RTI teams to present data. And then through the help of our virtual breakout rooms, the policy teams are going to have an opportunity to connect and ask RTI evaluation team members any questions they might have. And this is just really a nice opportunity. You know, there are times where our data managers and others are invited to the policy team meetings and are able to like present on one specific thing like validation results or a data dashboard. But this will be a way for us to kind of open things up, if you will, present on something, give them some findings, but then get in the breakout room so that we can answer any and all questions based on whatever that topic is. So those are soon to come, but really excited to be able to present those. Yeah, and, and building on that, we're, we're just trying different kinds of dissemination, trying to make sure that this research reaches the widest audience and really reaches the people who are most impacted by pretrial policies. So in addition to webinars, we're also looking forward to doing some different kinds of resource briefs, trying out different formats, um, briefs that communicate what's been happening across all of the sites, which will provide learning opportunities for other jurisdictions looking to implement the PSA or other jurisdictions that are just looking to make pretrial policy changes that aren't necessarily the PSA, but that will impact their overall criminal legal system. Do you both foresee any emerging areas coming out of this research? I'll go back to community engagement again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of interest from our site and community members, but our sites in particular, we're interested in documenting what their process looks like in each of their sites, how it differs, and how successful engagement can be shared so that other sites might benefit from that knowledge. So again, thinking about dissemination and ways to get this information out there. We love to put together a nice brief and we may do another one on community engagement, but we really are looking for innovative ways to disseminate this. So again, it might be a webinar, it might be a pre-recorded message that we can send out, send them a link to a YouTube video, We're just looking at ways that we can get this information out and we'll be encouraging some peer-to-peer learning along the way so that those sites who are engaging in the community engagement might be able to share personally or one-on-one with a site who is struggling. Amanda, are there any areas um, that you're super excited about coming out of this research? One topic that I've been particularly interested in is how these policy teams in the research action sites make decisions, and in particular, how they make decisions by consensus, especially the sites that we've been talking about that are really incorporating feedback from community members and community members with lived experience. 
-hmm. it's one thing to like invite new people to the table and say, hey, we want to make sure you hear about what's going on, that you're informed that it's coming before it happens. But jurisdictions range really widely in how much decision-making power those people are given. And that can really have an impact on the policies that are ultimately implemented. There are policy teams that have like a very top-down process of decision-making, very democratic processes, like whether actually democratic or just aspiring to be democratic, and then everything in between. And it'll be so interesting to see how these policy development teams evolve over time, especially with greater community involvement, and then how the PSA is implemented differently in jurisdictions that have a lot of community involvement versus jurisdictions that don't. So in terms of topic areas, I can see that as one of our sort of emerging areas that we start to cover more in this research. Great. And are there any recommendations for other um, areas that this research should go into that you guys have been thinking about? So we know, um, again, I'm going to go back to community engagement here. Mm -hmm. We know that meaningful community engagement takes time, commitment and sensitivity, you know, kind of what Yamanda was just talking about. But it really should be considered an essential part of APPR and other criminal legal system reform efforts. In the brief that we mentioned earlier, we did provide some strategies that the research action sites are either using or considering as they plan to meaningfully engage members of their community. And some of them include engaging the community early and regularly, inviting community members to join work groups and subcommittees. You know, so we know just inviting them to join isn't enough, right? There needs to be meaningful interaction to make this a mutually beneficial partnership. Um, we recommend pairing new community members with experienced policy team members to receive mentorship and support if needed, standardizing language to ensure common terms are used, example systems impacted versus formerly incarcerated, and we recommend encouraging professional stakeholders to affirm community members and their contributions so that they feel heard and feel valued and respected. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'll go back to what I was saying before about pretrial systems being a sort of critical period in people's lives. Just one contact with this pretrial system can make a huge difference in whether someone bounces back from a mistake or in a community's trust toward an institution that's trying to reverse these generations and generations of oppression and systemic racism. So I think it's a critical period, but I also think that we're also at a sort of critical period for pretrial reform in general. I think that during COVID and in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we're once again really closely examining the limitations of this system and how it operates and what we thought it couldn't do, but has managed to do in, in extenuating circumstances. And I would just like to say that I hope we're really learning lessons from this that point us in brave and sustainable new directions. And I'm an optimist, so I believe that we are. I believe that we will learn those lessons. And in closing, um, Peyton, I think I'd just like to add that, you know, we're all aware of the devastating impacts that an unnecessary detention can have on a person, on their families and communities at large. I'm hopeful that projects like the APPR will help push necessary reform in the direction we need to significantly decrease those impacts, especially as we see the rates rise more and more in communities of color. Thank you. Thank you both. Well, 
that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Yamanda Wright and Monica Shepard, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss reforming pretrial policies. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversations, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the field, visit advancingpretrial.org. And for additional information on the Transformative Research Unit for Equity, or TRUE, at RTI International, please visit www.rti.org slash practice area slash Transformative Research Unit for Equity. I am Peyton Attaway, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science discusses alternatives to traditional law enforcement responses. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.